Welcome back. The world, including South Africa, is facing a cybercrime catastrophe. It's according to a report by Surfshark. The report has highlighted South Africa ranking sixth in the world regarding cybercrime density. Uh, the South African National Editors Forum, Latsanef, has come out in support of journalist Karen Mon. Meanwhile, media solidarity in support of Mon is growing. The Editors Forum is picketing outside the courthouse. Africa is growing exponentially in terms of internet connectivity, but at the same time lags behind on cybersecurity. This is a major concern for many stakeholders and was the main theme during the first Africa Cybersecurity Summit organized in Togo's capital, Lomi, this week. The murky space of cyberspace. This episode forms part of a two-part series taking an in-depth look at the importance and often overlooked topics of digital rights, digital security, anti-censorship technologies, and more personally, protecting the civic space. When last did you do a personal digital rights hygiene check? Another welcome back to Episode 3, Season 4 of the Let's Talk Human Rights Podcast. I am your host, Masichaba Masimola Wamdaka, and I'm excited that you are listening in again. Today we are well, virtually and literally everywhere. Let's look at some examples that are commonly expressed or that you can relate to. Think about the last time you registered or applied for something online. How does that speak to the protection of your personal information or the threat of identity theft? Online cybercrime is in the form of scamming. Cyberbullying? What do you do when you or know someone who is a victim? Your WhatsApp conversations and calls? Your right to privacy or the understanding of what encryption speaks to? What does it all mean? And what about internet shutdowns by governments to curb freedom of expression during critical times of political expression? The list is extensive. In a recent publication commissioned by the United Nations in partnership with the Alliance for Universal Digital Rights in February 2023 entitled Securing Our Human Rights in Our Digital World, it notes, and I quote, Imagine a future in which all citizens of the digital ecosystem, no matter who they are or where they live, can enjoy equal rights to safety, freedom, and dignity, because the digital environment like the natural environment, transcends borders. Sounds really good on paper. But how does this translate into our everyday lives? In this episode journey, I am joined by Wakesho and Helen, both from Internews. I would be doing you a great disservice if I do not introduce Internews and the great work they do, not just across the world, but on targeted interventions on the African continent. Internews is an international media support nonprofit working in 100 plus countries. For 40 years, they have helped partners reach millions of people with trustworthy information that saves lives, improves livelihoods, and holds institutions accountable. They address a wide range of issues, including confronting propaganda and corruption, protecting a free and open internet, educating citizens on media and data literacy, and strengthening health and environmental systems. 
to introduce my guests today. Wakesho is the Africa Coordinator, Digital Rights, Greater Internet Freedom, GIF, project at Internews. She serves as a member of the Law Society of Kenya Public Interest Litigation and Legal Aid Committee. Wakesha was named Civil Society Lawyer of the Year first runner-up in 2019 and Top 35 Under 35 Youth Advocate of the Year in 2020. She is an advocate of the High Court of Kenya and has a postgraduate diploma in law from the Kenya School of Law. Since 2021, Helen has been working as the Community Manager, Safe Sisters Program at Internews. Safe Sisters trains women human rights defenders to use digital safety in their work and support their community navigate the challenges of tech-facilitated gender-based violence. Her professional background is in education, training, and facilitation using the adult learning methodology. Her interests are science, technology, and space. Both my guests join me remotely from Kenya and Uganda, respectively. Wakesho, Helen, welcome and indeed a pleasure to be having this important exchange with you today. Oh, wow, the pleasure is mine. Hi. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Master Chaba. To start off my line of questioning, I'd like to speak about definitions and legal frameworks. Keeping up with the lexicon alone has found its way to slang and some of us become completely lost. Wakesho, I'll begin with you. What are digital rights and why is there a growing emphasis on the need and right to know? Simply stated, digital rights are human rights in the digital realm. They are the same fundamental human rights as those enjoyed offline, but adapted to a new age of technology. So technology and the internet have transformed the way we communicate, the way we engage in public activities, and how we conduct ourselves, um, leaving very few areas of our lives unaffected. Of course, in addition to this, the COVID-19 pandemic increased our reliance on digital technology. Now, um, the use of these technologies and digital spaces has also implicated the way we enjoy and exercise our human rights such as the right to freedom of expression, the right to education, the right to access information, just to name a few. Let me begin with the right to freedom of expression online. So this refers to the ability of individuals to express themselves online without fear of censorship or punishment by governments or other entities. Advocates such as myself and digital rights advocates in general work to ensure that individuals are able to express themselves freely and safely online through advocating for policies that protect online privacy, that combat censorship and surveillance, and promote free speech. Now, in the current data-driven era, the right to privacy has gained increasing recognition as a fundamental right, both in itself and as an enabler of other rights. It enables the right to freedom of expression, for instance, by allowing individuals to share views anonymously in circumstances where they may be, uh, you know, they may be afraid to be censured for those views. For example, by allowing whistleblowers to make protected disclosures or also allowing and enabling members of the media and activists to communicate in a secure manner beyond the reach of uh, lawful government interception. I know that in your line of work, 
specifically speaking to issues of research, training, and also the campaigns that you run. You know, you speak about the responsibility to speak to policies that obviously then speak to the legal framework, which is so important. Can we actually talk about in the African context, on the African continent, do we even have cases that we can refer to as best practice? So, Master Chaba, I would say that unfortunately, what we are seeing is that a lot of these laws and legal frameworks are quite repressive and infringe on, you know, the right to freedom of expression and the freedom of the media. And again, what we are seeing is that many of our African governments are, you know, in the habit of copy pasting laws from each other. So, and again, you find that, um, you know, some of these laws and, you know, laws contain provisions that are not good. So we then see that, uh, you know, one country ruling, you know, this law that, again, as I've mentioned, did not have, uh, you know, good provisions, so to speak. So what we try to do is uh, when these countries and governments call for public participation on these laws, we then come together, you know, with experts on board, analyze these laws and then give recommendations to governments and say, for example, we understand that you're trying to regulate disinformation. However, the offenses that you are including in this particular law are too tough. You know, how about, um, you know, looking at it in a different way or trying to reduce that particular offense? So we then come in during that point of public participation to give better recommendations to the particular laws. And of course, um, you know, I would say that, you know, other times those recommendations are not taken into consideration. Other times they are in fact taken into consideration. And that is why we just continue to forge forward, right? And then the other thing that I would maybe then call upon to other civil society actors and non-governmental organizations is to then maybe think through creating model laws, right? Model laws that would contain the provisions that we would want to see or that, you know, better provisions that we would want to see in these legislations and also trying to engage with parliamentarians and policymakers from the onset and not, um, you know, wait for these laws to be passed and therefore, you know, there are more reactionary measures. So in that light, Helen, I'd like to bring you in here. Wakesh has touched on um, several points around recommendations. And I would like us to go into discussing digital security considerations within the civic space and um, how this actually potentially plays itself out. Um, I'm thinking more specifically here in line with misinformation, disinformation and malinformation. How are organizations working in the best interests of safeguarding rights and protecting this phenomena from prevailing? Well, I think that there's work being done by different organizations. People have different approaches. And I think that there isn't just one way of doing it. There's a kind of co-sharing of the responsibility, the, the civic partner, uh, the community itself, and then the platforms that uh, enable this thing to happen. So it's a little bit confusing because it's something that's not new. It's just that it's been propelled onto a platform that just by its creation speeds things up, speeds the movement of information. So you can just imagine us communicating as a species for all these years and you hear something and by the end of the day, you sometimes can decide whether it's true information or if it's not. So I think that organizations need to 
help the community like us to figure out how to make those changes and to know which is what. Information as an environment is so uniquely important to preserve it because it's full of individuals, organizations, and all these human beings at work collecting, processing, and sharing information, sometimes even having to be the ones to act on the information, which that's why civic partners are very, very important. I think that disinformation, just because it's such a very large threat, it, it, it's one of those things that when you think of the far future, uh, it could go various ways. But I think that putting some concerns on the forefront would be good. Putting those concerns on decision-making tables. Why should people care? For example, the issue of climate change. So 20, 30 years, we have evidence there's climate change. The scientists are in agreement, at least most of them, a big percentage of them. So what's missing? So where's the gap between that data that has been collected and acting on it so that we can preserve the planet that we're on for future generations? That's also an issue. I think part of the issue is that we see ourselves quite distant from that. So if you have a social media site, right, and you have a following, and you have the mindset, the disbelief of climate change, you could create something really catchy and, and it's going to discredit, it's going to create crisis, speculation, fear. And when it comes to the leaders, even the leaders themselves, I feel in several cases, um, they too need information about climate change. So how does this information, for example, how can we push it to the forefront in things? One more thing, maybe COVID happened recently. Um, we also what happened, we also what information was coming through. Um, I mean, at this point, um, surely there's something has to change before the next uh, crisis. I think some solutions that we could also push for as civic organizations is just like support good trusted information collection a circulation when you have good and trusted information you have a thriving information ecosystem and that helps to filter out and to identify when something looks even if it looks like it's true that it is not true Helen, thank you for that, because you speak about co-sharing responsibilities. And, you know, we, we've just touched on the issue of stakeholders and how everybody has this responsibility. I mean, the architecture and the governance. Strategic lawsuits against public participation, also known as slap suits. One would even wonder in a world where we are supposed to be coexisting, co-sharing responsibilities. How does this, in the true sense of the word, even exist? And how is it even legal? I ask this specifically in the case of holding each other accountable and where there's supposed to be a shared responsibility around issues of looking at misinformation, disinformation or malinformation. Thank you, Master Chapa, for that question. And um, indeed, we are seeing slap suits gaining popularity um, in the recent years. So let me first begin by, um, you know, for the sake of our audience who may not be familiar with the, the idea, Slap suits generally refer to lawsuits 
that are filed by, say, you know, companies or corporations, public officials, or any other powerful entity, right? Against um, non-governmental organizations, they could be against journalists, they could be against uh, civil society actors, activists, researchers, or even the members of the public who express critical positions with the intent to silence and harass these critics, right? So the essence here of this slap suit is that they are filed not to seek justice, but to intimidate people and make sure they drain their financial resources defending these suits. Because you see, um, you know, these people or persons who have been faced with a slap suit would spend a lot of their time, whether, you know, time and resources, whether financially, emotionally, defending these baseless suits. And, um, you know, just a bit of statistics here. The Business and Human Rights Center once released a report in 2021 that was based on um, research they had conducted that found 355 slap cases initiated by business actors in the period between 2015 and 2021. And um, these were against individuals and groups, and they were related to either their defense of human rights or their environment. You know, let me give an example using a company that say files a suit against an NGO that has released a statement condemning that particular organization or corporation for human rights abuses. So you find that, of course, the NGO probably has conducted research. They've found that there actually are human rights violations happening, whether in a particular factory, for example. And so when they release that statement or when they condemn that corporation, then this corporation then retaliates by filing this slap suit. Again, as I've mentioned, they are an abuse of justice systems. And um, of course, uh, maybe just also to point out, not many countries have anti-slap suits legislations. Many countries also shy away from over-legislating. You know, you have a lot of legislations that... Um, you know, probably protect people or protect their freedom of expression, right? And so they have not necessarily delved into creating legislations that would protect people against anti-slap suits. However, just because we do not have, or many countries do not have anti-slap suits legislation, we are seeing communities world over joining hands to push back against them, right? We are also seeing campaigns pushing against slaps and organizations are also in many places now coming together to push back against slap suits. For example, there's a coalition against slaps in Europe and the sole objective of this coalition is to protect the rights of those who speak out and advocate for comprehensive, uh, you know, protective measures and, you know, reform against these slap suits. So maybe just to encourage our listeners today not to shy back from coming out to, you know, to call a corporation, to call a government official to account. That is very well within their right and, you know, to express themselves. In the event this unfortunate situation of a slap suit would happen, there are, you know, there are resources and there are people who would come together to, to join hands and, you know, protect that individual or organization. Most definitely. And I would like to just take our, our, our mind to not necessarily uh, specific examples, because I think it can speak generally to issues of elections, for example, political expression from, from the will of the people. And speaking specifically to influencing narratives which have dangerous outcomes. 
The Institute for Security Studies recently held a webinar entitled The Impact of Digital Influence on Africa's Elections, Lessons from Kenya. Now, when we speak to some of these examples or the context that you've been giving, where do we see gaps, for example, in terms of where building digital awareness for citizens and what roles should or could platforms play in this regard? maybe even to circumvent repercussions or sort of these these repercussions that really don't suit anyone to no end or sometimes they are protective. You know, one of the things that uh, we saw, and I'm sure this is not just, you know, specifically to the Kenyan situation, because again, as we, you know, started from the beginning, a lot of us, you know, have access to the internet. We have access to mobile phone technologies. We are on social media. So, of course, during moments of elections, there's a lot of information that is being thrown left, right and center. You know, with that, we're seeing a lot of forms of disinformation that are coming out, whether that be deep fakes, you know, WhatsApp messages containing incorrect information. And so, of course, these are spread through social media. And so, again, you find that many people, you know, people are innocent. They do not know the sources of this information. They do not know whether this information is true or not, but they continue pushing it forward and spreading it, right? So what I would say here that as a gap, one is in terms of digital literacy. Many of our citizens are not able to determine whether a certain piece of information is actually true. Again, many of us do not even have fact-checking skills. So that is, uh, you know, you know, one thing that I'm seeing as a gap. Um, the other thing, when we look at platforms, all of this information passing and a lot of this information, again, as I've said, is happening across social media platforms. This also brings to light the issue of content moderation. We are seeing a lot of harmful speech during electoral period, you know, during the electoral period. And so this, again, calls upon the role of platforms as content moderators, right? And so one gap here, again, is um, around the issue of content moderation. And uh, one thing maybe I would point out also is, again, closely related to citizen awareness and citizen literacy is that many people do not know that there are certain community standards that should be upheld, right? So, for example, if you're on Facebook, Facebook has community standards that sort of show or rather explain what is allowed and what is not allowed in the platform. However, these community standards are not in languages that people understand. So if we do not have these community standards and guidelines in Taita, for example, or you know any of our local languages, then people would not understand, they would not be able to interact with them, right? The other thing also is around automated moderation and human moderators. One of the things that is also coming out clearly is, uh, of course, we have a larger number of users as compared to the human moderators that platforms have, you know, whose role is to moderate content, to, you know, to delete posts and take things down, you know, anything harmful posted, this should be taken down either by human moderators or automated moderation, you know, using artificial intelligence, for example. But then again, the human moderators are, you know, not enough. We don't even know their exact number. And if it's automated, then you find that uh, many times, uh, you know, the language that the artificial intelligence is fed is, again, not able to detect hateful speech or hateful utterances in our local languages. So, you know, those are the two gaps that I would say. 
that exist. This really brings us straight to where the conversation should be going, which is the user experience or what I would define as the user experience and why it's so important uh, for the general public to be educated and know how to be protected. Helen, we speak about digital hygiene, digital citizenry and digital awareness. How available is the information to people and does it only exist in the virtual space? You know, Wakesha now touches on language, something that's so important in terms of identification and being able to be aware in itself. How do people self-check? Yeah, the language is concerning the localization efforts, I think, in my opinion, should be tripled so that people can access information. To answer your question, information is available. There's a lot of it. It's just going into your browser and typing in a sentence like, how can I make a stronger password? Or just how can I check that my digital security is up to standard? It's doing those searches and seeing what, what comes up. I would suggest trying one thing at a time because a lot of digital security at first, it might, uh, it might seem, you know, what is this? What's happening? It's, it's my device and the software, this and this, click on that. So all that can be a little bit deterring at first. So I would suggest go for one thing. Maybe it's you've seen something uh, on your phone, it's acting funny, and just doing a, a troubleshoot and say, what, how can I uh, delete or save storage on my phone? And when you find that information, it leads you so much faster into figuring out the right thing to do. I would say just breaking down the task into something bite-sized, like three, which is getting to know your device, the thing that you walk around holding. It's either your phone, your phone or it's your laptop at home, your computer. is getting to know what it is. Who, who made that thing? How was it made? What does it need to keep functioning? We, you, we keep hearing software updates of, so what does that mean? And then getting to know how you surf the internet. Long time ago, they say surf the web. How, what is your behavior like there? When you open browsers, what do you do? What do you see? And also that can be pulled from the internet. Um, I would say... Just figuring out which is the the safer ones or most recommended ones um, to use. So when I say browser, I mean things like Chrome, things like Firefox, things like Tor Browser. And the oldies, for me, it's easy for me to say because I've seen my colleagues do this work. But your attitude, you come into the self-check mode with... You, you want to open your mind, you want to learn something. And it's actually cool stuff at the end of the day because uh, it's made by bits and pieces. So the way they make this app is different from the way they make this app, but they are very grounding similarities of how applications are made. So understanding that is also going to take you on your journey to figuring out what is the best thing to do. And the very last thing I would recommend is just having a think about so you you exist in the physical realm. Um, you know, you can touch the table and things. But you also have the, the virtual realm, the virtual environment. So what is your behavior like there? So if you've ha- you're having a party and uh, you, you want some people to know about that party, 
So how can I send that picture or that message to only those people so that the other people who don't need to know that information don't see it? So it's things like that. Also looking around for things that are more intimate. How, how do you share? How do you share? How do you connect? Yeah, Helen, you know, this self-check is so important. And I think the guidance that you've given to really just say to people, these are the little things that you can do for yourself, which is it's not very broad. It, it's literally the, the small things, as you say, the building blocks. And you mentioned earlier, as we were speaking in the conversation about the speed and change of information, you know, how does one actually realistically keep up with all of this? Especially in line, you know, you speak about private spaces and and people sharing personal information. How does one recognize when they are being violated or when they themselves um, have been a violator in terms of infringing on another person's rights? It's setting a reminder, something as small as that is setting every day. You have your phone, you have a calendar. So set a reminder and say, oops, it's time for me to check if my so my, uh, I've done an update on my operating system, the thing that helps my device to work. And so you remind yourself, because we are so busy and it's hard to keep up, but I think like it's a very determined uh, sense of security, much like the one that you have when you enter your house at night, you close the door and you lock that door. Every single night, you probably do that. So who, who teaches you how to do that? It's like a nut. So where, as you engage more and your whole life is, every time we're always sending emails and everything now is, is on these devices. So it might be also interesting, even just as a challenge every three months to see what have I done this quarter to figure out my security online. I think that recognizing that you have been abused can be difficult. And it's okay if you feel that way, if you've, you've been violated, but then it took you so long. And sometimes we, have, we feel guilty about that. I should have seen that. I should have seen that. But really recognizing violence is also getting rid of the past historical understanding of what people should take, like, how can you say that to me, for example? This is clearly abuse. This is clearly a hate speech. Um, I did not want my photo to be shared that day. We were having dinner. I did not want that. You know, all those instances that make you feel unsafe, that's how you would start to recognize and also help people around you. If infringing on other people's rights, I think it is also quite human and civilized to think of yourself in that regard. For most of us, most perpetrators, when you study perpetrators and you ask this question, well, didn't you know? And sometimes it's not, it's not obvious, maybe due to peer pressure or just like upbringing and, and these cultural norms that really don't encourage human rights. They, they mostly just are derogatory and draconian. So we also have to like pull from that and recognize it in ourselves. And then you'll be one step farther away from infringing on somebody else's rights. I would like to talk about Helen Wakesho, you being, you know, real keyboard warriors and why it matters to you. 
I'm so glad I can actually finally ask this question in a way that won't be offensive, as I feel it has such direct relevance to this topic. Often those who do advocacy through social media, write-up platforms, instead of what one would say directly being in the line of danger in the physical sense, although sometimes it can translate to that, are referred to as keyboard warriors. Um, Helen, again, back to you. What is your why? And why does working in this particular realm, no puns intended, mean to you? In my personal view, I think that a lot of work goes into being able to be that person who works in the field. And in the case of journalists and people who help a healthy ecosystem of information to exist, I feel like uh, those people are really what I look up to in this line of work and still trying to figure out how they do it and still... Actually, I did want to say that when we, we invite uh, groups, sets of uh, activists, and we are talking to them about digital safety, they do open up about their realities and trying to understand what they go through. Um, I think that gives it's a great motivator to, to keep on uh, doing anything that, that is, is possible to enhance civic engagement through knowledge, because once they have knowledge, then they know what decisions to make, and then they can make the right decisions and then keep uh, building from there, and participations and also supporting institutions. Technology is part of our lives now. We live in a digital age. And um, the reason we do this, the reason we conduct research, the reason we train people the reason we conduct, again, advocacy campaigns is that, one, we want people to be aware of their rights in the digital spaces. We also want to equip people to be able to advocate for and to be able to defend their digital rights. And three, also, we want to capacitate people to be able to, you know, call governments to account and call corporations to account to ask them, um, you know, for better protection and, you know, promotion and the respect of uh, their digital rights. In closing, and to both of you, reflecting on your personal journeys and purpose means that you provide and enable the spaces, not just in the civic engagement portion, but also very much uh, participation of the public and also supporting institutions and their governance. What are your hopes and possibly fears looking ahead to the future in terms of cybersecurity? I'll start with you, Wakesha. My hope is that we get to a point where citizens, civil society actors, human rights defenders, journalists, activists, everybody in essence gets to a place where they're able to, one, um, know and understand their rights in the digital age. And secondly, also to be aware of the dangers that exist as they navigate their lives online and, um, you know, so that, again, they're able to keep themselves safe. Thank you, Akesha. And Helen, your closing thoughts, please. Let's keep a collective eye on disinformation that is gendered. So more of the inaccurate information and fake stories, uh, but intended to humiliating people from minority groups and women, especially if they are political leaders, um, any kind of public figure. Wakesha, Helen, thank you so much for this invaluable exchange on such an important topic and one that will continue. It affects all of us and we need to want and know more 
and also act responsibly there too. Part two of exploring digital rights as human rights will look at anti-censorship technologies and protecting the civic space. I thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Well, I can safely say there's never a point when you have or know too much information in this evolving digital era. Its vastness requires thought to action, to responsibility and accountability of use. Some things that stood out for me during this conversation were that language and localization are key. Making sure that people understand things like community guidelines online is really important and can be the barrier to digital safety. Legislation in the digital world can be difficult and needs to evolve quickly as technology changes. More can be done in this arena, especially in terms of being able to mitigate risks for things like strategic lawsuits aimed at silencing people online. Lastly, as citizens of the real and digital world, we can take responsibility for understanding digital rights and making sure we educate ourselves and do regular digital hygiene checks. My right, your right, our right. Humanity should and continues to be for us all, everywhere. This has been the third episode, season four of Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring various human rights issues. We trust you have been informed and well, that you've received your digital awakening today. Please hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while and enjoying it, why not leave us a five-star review? The Friedrich Naumann Foundation, Sub-Sahara Africa, FNF, is an independent German organization that is committed to promoting liberal ideals and politics in Africa, such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, cultural happenings, and training courses, the Foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, and LGBTQIA rights, and engages against violence targeting women and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply check for Friedrich Naumann Foundation Africa. The links are in the show notes.